welcome to Strategy Talk where the authors and editors discuss news and events with a splash of history. Our host today is Dan Masterson. Joining him is Jim Dunnigan, well-known military author and the Dean of Wargaming. Also, joining today's show is columnist and author retired Lieutenant Colonel Austin Bay. Welcome Austin and Jim. One of the things that's curious to me is how long with, now that we've got two wars going, how long the munitions are going to hold out. Uh, I read an article somewhere and I can't find it again, but uh, a lot of things are are low, right, Jim? Yes, the uh, United States sent a lot of its reserves that it had in the Pacific uh, to Ukraine because there is a, a crisis. Uh, <laughs> the problem is both Russia and uh, the West are having problems increasing production. Uh, Russia has the infrastructure, but they don't have the raw material, so to speak. Uh, whoever has more ammunition, more artillery ammunition, has an edge in combat. Uh, it gives you a decisive edge in, in when you're defending because you can, you know, you, you basically can stop an offensive with artillery. Uh, I, I, you know, an offensive needs a lot of artillery uh, in order to overcome whatever the enemy has, you know, keeping you out of their territory. Uh, so the artillery ammunition mess is uh, still there and getting worse. We're talking millions of rounds uh, that are needed. Uh, right now, uh, I think the Ukraine is using anywhere from 300,000 to half a million rounds a month, uh, you know, just to keep in the fight. Um, and uh, reserves to uh, sustain that uh, degree of use uh, are kind of shaky. Uh, the Russians are much better off. You know, it's it's, sem- it's somewhat similar to World War One, where both sides ran out of artillery ammunition. It didn't stop the fighting, but it certainly slowed it down. And uh, they eventually caught up, you know, and, and that's why, you know, our, our image of World War One is a battlefield, you know, torn up by constant artillery fire. Uh, they don't use it like that anymore. But it is a vital component of uh, modern warfare, and everybody's relearning that. And they're relearning that uh, if the war, unless it's going to be a short war, which it hardly ever is, uh, you got to have not only a large reserve of ammunition. We're talking millions of rounds of whatever caliber you use—155 for uh, NATO, 152 for Russia. Uh, you have to have production capability. And now the United States is, is building that capacity. But it basically won't be online until uh, uh, two years from now. Uh, so, you know, better late than never because you never know when there will be another conflict. Uh, again, that, this is a this is a, uh, a constant problem. The uh, peace on the legislators is even in democracies as well as Russia. <laughs> they can find better things to do with the money uh, than to stockpile lots of ammunition. Another problem is, especially in Russia... Is that ammunition has a has a has a, a defined shelf life? In other words, after fifteen or twenty years, the ammunition starts to degrade. Uh, now the Russians don't care about using degraded ammunition; they just warn the crew, "Say this stuff is kind of elderly, so stand back." Uh, in most cases, <laughs> the older ammunition simply doesn't uh, go go where you intended to go. But hey, it lands somewhere in enemy territory. And so it simply reminds it that you're still firing, um, but you know it's it's always a, it's always a problem maintaining peacetime 
uh, stockpiles. And I don't think that's going to change. You know, this war will be over. And again, you know, legislatures will say, well, we have to maintain those stockpiles. And they get pushed back from the voters. And, you know, one thing leads to another. And you're all set for the next emergency uh, with the same problems of supply. Austin, where are they digging up the uh, extra munitions for this war? Well, in, in some ways, Dan, it's, it's robbing uh, Peter to provide Paul with uh, shells. And sometimes you have to go back to Peter. And I, uh, South Korea provided a lot of 155-millimeter uh, shells to us, supposedly restocking our stocks as we uh, provided, I'm talking about the United States, 155-millimeter uh, rounds to uh, Ukraine. I don't understand we're doing it for the uh, it, it Israelis uh, as well. That's that's it, it, allies that have the same, roughly the same weapons that require the same shells are 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 reaches. Um, Ukraine got rounds, I understand, from uh, from Finland. Uh, there have been a number of, after you know, the collapse of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, the Eastern European countries that uh, could join NATO and finally did join NATO wanted to uh, acquire NATO standard weapons. And that meant moving from a 1.52 millimeter uh, Soviet Russian type uh, uh, howitzer uh, to uh, a 1.55, and uh, in, in some cases, a 105 millimeter for your medium artillery now with the 105s are regarded as as uh, uh, light artillery so they had some stocks which the term is cascading cascading to uh, uh to ukraine but overall our problem is is, is one of, of expectations the war you expected isn't the one you've got now on 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 the side of Ukraine and the on the West supporting uh, Ukraine, you uh, see expectations of the shortage of rounds the Russians expected to ha have a three week at most uh, war, a blitzkrieg war. So that's and they uh, they didn't get it, and then we've got this st curious stalemate where artillery has once again become the king of the battlefield. Uh, we had a podcast on that, the, the return of the god of artillery. Uh, artillery never left, Dan, but it, it's, you, you see the uh, why, why it's such a, a devastating weapon and, and uh, in Ukraine and because of the improved, here Jim was talking about out-of-date munitions, I'll get back to that in a second, but the improved type munitions, extended range and uh, pinpoint accuracy, whether they're GPS or uh, internal uh, internal guidance uh, makes them even the the shells even more deadly, and they they're you're not exposing a, a manned aircraft. And uh, anyway, get 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 back to sources. You've got multiple sources, but the, the thing is, you have to have some sort of coordinating group, and coordination some of it's come out of the pentagon some of it's been uh most of it has come out of uh, out of nato to try these uh the stocks identify them and 
bring them uh, to you, Craig. But then the question becomes the one that Jim started to, to answer. Uh, how do we replenish our stocks? Uh, how does South Korea replenish uh, its, its stocks? Uh, how does Australia replenish its stocks when we're sending it uh, to U uh, Ukraine and the war we all expected wasn't going to be so artillery uh, intense? And it, you've got to have the industrial base. South Korea does for its size. It's got a fabulous industrial, uh, military industrial base. U.S. has let our rot become moribund. And as Jim says, we're spinning it up. I, I read that we were going to reach the, uh, actually, I read it on the strategy page, depending with the numbers, but we were about half the production we needed to be at uh, earlier this year in 2023, and we won't hit the production number until sometime in the middle of next year, but to replenish the stocks, as Jim said, is going to take us some time in late 2025 to get back to where uh, we now think that I should to replenish it. But we're going to need more shells uh, if uh, we get into uh, a, 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 an extended war ourselves or have to continue to supply uh, our allies uh, who are under attack. And it's, well, I said it's the expectations, the war you didn't expect. But, you know, what this, this, our cur the current situation with uh, artillery ammo is very much like what happened in uh, the late fall of 1914 with the European powers uh, on the Western Front and also on the Eastern Front suddenly found out that they had expended almost all of their pre-war uh, artillery uh, artillery ammunition because the uh, rate to, the rate of fire was far more than quote unquote was expected and in Great Britain it led to a, a political crisis the shell crisis of 1915 uh, in and uh, why were you know investigations why are we so short of ammunition that's in part it's because uh, the uh, uh, British uh, Ministry of Defense that had done their calculations. So French had done the same, their, their calculations. And even one of the, the problems of the, uh, the, the uh, in some ways, a quote-unquote good problem, is quick-firing artillery like the French 75, just suddenly you could expend tons of ammunition. are firing at the same rates that some of the calculations pre-war uh, calculations uh, were based upon, and uh, that's uh, trench warfare uh, uh, as a result, also the wrong kind of ammunition, because a lot of the planning was that they were going to have fragmentation rounds, shra uh, shrapnel rounds to take out infantry in the open, and that, as Jim pointed out, becomes uh, 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 um, trench warfare, they, they need uh, the high explosive that can blow up uh, fortifications. They had to retool in the, in the middle of it. The Germans had uh, their own shortages in 14 and 15, and then uh, have your, uh, another problem in, in 1960. Now, no, there are real differences. Uh, this a century uh, and uh, 10 years can make a huge difference. It has, but uh, nevertheless, there is a, a historical uh, a historical example 
of of uh, the failure to plan for uh, high ammunition expenditures, and it took uh, it took both the the, the central powers and the uh, Fran- the western uh, on the western front. It took about two years to fix it, and it looks like it's going to take about uh, two and a half years just to fix it in uh, 2023, 2025. Another problem is we always underestimate how much ammunition we're going to need, especially artillery ammunition. Uh, that was the case, as Austin pointed out, in uh, World War One. In fact, there was another ironic uh, development there. The, uh, the Allies had uh, uh, de- developed a lot of these shrapnel rounds, and they discovered... After the war, when the, when the Americans were basically testing some of these rounds, one accidentally went off and a bunch of people were standing around that they didn't hurt people. I mean, they'd hurt, but they wouldn't kill. They wouldn't injure. The The shrapnel was overrated, and nobody realized that. Uh, I mean, during the war, they said, well, you know, uh, we're using all the munitions we got. It's not enough, so buy more shrapnel, and we'll keep firing and uh, keep just bruising these guys or just not even penetrating anything. And um, and maybe it'll get better. There's always, you're always using less than you think you need. But we discovered that, for example, in the 73 war in Israel. Uh, we were supplying them with munitions. They had their estimates of what they would need, and they vastly underestimated how much they would need. And, you know, we're talking about artillery. Now, this time around, they don't need artillery ammunition. What they need is small diameter bombs, you know, for their attacks on Gaza. And we, and we, we suddenly started shipping all that in, and the reserves of artillery ammunition, we can't sort in Israel, went straight to Ukraine. So you basically got to be prepared to be flexible and you know, you know, substitute and basically move things around. Because it's never going to work out the way you thought it would. Uh, I think everybody will learn the lesson uh, in Ukraine that you don't have enough ammunition uh, stored. But they're also going to learn if, if they try and fix it that the politicians, the voters, won't put up with all the money being spent on the stockpiling huge quantities of ammunition that are just going to sit there. Now, what the United States, as the Congress, I think, has approved billions of dollars, I think $13, $14 billion, to basically upgrade the production capabilities. Now, this is something that will, that will last, I mean, unless you deliberately let it go to crap. But you know, one of the problems was that production capability, as Austin pointed out, takes years, you know, to uh, to put in place, uh, you know, the industrial capacity. Well, Congress has basically got religion and that department, and the money's been appropriated, but it's too late for Ukraine. Uh, Russia realized the same thing. Now, Russia had a lot of ammunition in reserve, uh, but they had they really didn't have the capacity to build a lot more. Their, their, their sanctions that hurt them at big time, you know, economically, because a lot of the uh, the uh, goods that were sanctioned on the on the on the economic sanctions were dual use and were used in uh, creating weapons. Uh, so the the Russians are basically ironically suffering from economic sanctions uh, impacting their uh, ability to uh, generate uh, you know more ammunition supplies rather than you know just sanctions on uh, letting them buy ammunition from anywhere. They bought ammunition from South Korea anyway. Uh, and, uh, and it was a lot of old stuff, but, you know, it was still effective. Uh, but the, the North Koreans have basically <laughs> sent all their older ammunition, and uh, now their factories are working overtime 
it's more employment for uh, uh, North Korean, uh, starving North Korean, you know, munitions plant workers uh, to produce new ammunition. But, you know, the North Koreans benefit from that because they basically dump, you know, a decade's worth of elderly ammunition, which was simply going to, you know, go to the point where it was useless. Um, so they benefited uh, from it. But everybody else basically didn't have a lot of elderly ammunition. Uh, again, the voters and the democracy will not, you know, sit for, you know, spending a lot of money to pile up stockpiles. They were a little more willing to uh, go with uh, uh, in building the uh, the production infrastructure that can quickly produce more because that provides more jobs in peacetime, you know, to build that infrastructure and to maintain it. Uh, and again, I, that's probably a lot more effective than trying to stockpile a lot of ammunition because the ammunition, like I say, you can't you can't update it. It basically goes bad after a while, and it becomes not useless, but less useful. Um, so, you know, we're relearning lessons that we really learned, you know, decades, half a century ago, as or as Justin points out, World War One, um, and hopefully it'll stick this time. But I wouldn't bet on it. Austin, um, what yeah, about there's, the? There's some, I'm, I'm sorry. So uh, specifically, yeah, what about uh, iron? I was going to The munitions, uh, the the missiles and like that for Iron Dome, is Israel going to keep up on that? Especially if uh, Hezbollah opens up from the north. The United States produces most of those missiles, the Tamir missiles for Iron Dome. Uh, they rose from the United States. The United States produces a lot of stuff that uh, Israel pays for. Or actually, we we give them several billion dollars a year in grants for military equipment. So we pay for it, but they get to decide what they want. And they basically want more of these Tamir missiles because they don't make them. The United States makes them. And uh, I don't know how, how long it's going to take them to get it. I think right now they, they basically survived with some damage. Uh, the, the massive barrages of rockets that came out of Gaza. Uh, that was always the uh, problem with Iron Dome. It's it's great in stopping, you know, a small, you know, limited bombardments, but a massive bombardment, it was always understood, would overwhelm Iron Dome, and a lot of it would get through, and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> there was some damage to ports like Ashland, and even, I think, uh, uh, the larger ports uh, further north, uh, but not so much that, uh, you know, they, they, the ports stopped operating. It discouraged a lot of foreign shipping from <laughs> sending stuff in there. That created some problems. You had to dump the, yeah, uh, unload the stuff somewhere else where an Israeli ship uh, or a more daring <laughs> shipper uh, could move it to uh, Israel. Uh, but that's the old, you know, insurance risk problem. If you get a situation where the, uh, the uh, uh, insurance rates for ships, you know, skyrockets because there's more risk. Uh, that's another cost of war, and you have to take that into account. That's why we stockpiled a lot of munitions in Israel, uh, because if they were going to have a, a crisis, uh, you couldn't wait. You, know, you can't really fly in artillery ammunition. That stuff's heavy, and you got to ship it in. So we stockpiled it. Uh, but it, as it turned out, Israel had problems with Hamas, but. They didn't need artillery. They needed, you know, uh, these small diameter bombs and and anti-aircraft missiles, and uh, that's easier to fly in. And uh, all the uh, the artillery ammunition basically went north to Ukraine. 
So you got to be flexible. And again, you can't plan for every contingency. But if you have enough ammunition and ability to produce it available, you know, on site, as it were, uh, you have the kind of flexibility you need to basically cope, or at least cope better than the enemy uh, with whatever uh, you encounter. So, so far, you know, uh, Ukraine is, is doing pretty good compared to the Russians. The Russians have not, they have sanctions on them. Uh, they they had limitations on what they can produce. Uh, as Austin pointed out, the NATO allies are, are getting their act together in terms of coordinating, you know, manufacturing of ammunition, who supplies what. And, uh, and of course, the, uh, the new NATO members, the ones that joined after 1991, uh, they had a lot of <laughs> 152-millimeter ammunition still sitting in there. And they sent that because, as Austin pointed out, the Ukrainians still have a lot of 152-millimeter guns. Uh, so they were able to use that stuff up. Uh, of course, you got to remember that these guns, the artillery uh, themselves, the barrels wear out after several thousand rounds. So, you know, the, they were basically, it's, it's a question of what's going to go first, your supply of ammunition or the, the barrel erosion uh, on the on the guns themselves. I haven't heard much about that as a problem, but it is a problem. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, it, it will become a critical problem. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But general barrel life on some of the 155s, I would say most of the Western 155s uh, manufactured in the in the last 20 years has been extended. So uh, yes. I said the same, but ultimately uh, pumping rounds out. Yeah, you're going to wear the barrel down. And it, that's another logistics and definitely munitions delivery uh, related problem. And uh, that's, uh, I'd be interested in knowing are finding out how those old held out the Soviet era that the uh, Ukrainians are using. My suspicion is that they don't hold up well at all. But uh, well, the Ukrainians Ukrainians had a lot of uh, Soviet era one fifty two millimeter howitzers uh, because they were basically the the depot, as it were, the manufacturing center for a disproportionate amount of Russian weapons. And when the Soviet Union collapsed. They got to keep everything that was there. That was the deal. We're not going to, you know, shuffle around. Well, you would deserve that. You deserve that. Uh, so Ukraine kept a lot of old ammunition and old guns see, that can use them. And they're not putting these to good use. So, you know, the Ukrainians had the right idea. They they exported some stuff. They they had some older tanks and T-72s and what have you. And they got one into the, uh, the refurbishment and export business. But that was never that large where it totally depleted their supplies. And it didn't really apply to ammunition because they were, they were exporting this stuff to countries that were involved, not involved in a major war. And if anything, they were just being used against rebels or, or what have you. Uh, so there was a lot of ammunition sitting around, you know, waiting for a major war that nobody wanted to come along. And bingo, there it is. And there goes the ammunition. So that solves one problem. Because both sides are going to eventually run out of this artillery ammunition. Uh, and it is happening to both sides. And uh, this sort of slows things down. Like Austin pointed out, it did in World War One. If you haven't got a lot of ammo, uh, you're not going to move that front line. In fact, in many parts of Ukraine, you have a World War One style front line where nobody has the ability, nobody has the munitions uh, to, uh, to uh, launch an effective offensive. And th that, that is literally... Uh, the reason why 
a lot of the front line, you know, the Ukrainian offensives aren't moving because they don't have enough ammunition to basically pave the way uh, for the advance. I mean, one way to clear a minefield is basically plowed up with artillery fire. Uh, bingo, there go the mines. Of course, there goes mobility, but uh, because you got all those, uh, you know, craters. But, uh, you know, that's the way war is. You know, it, it provides opportunities, but it also provides more obstacles. Well, we'll wrap it up there for today. And I was going to. Oh, do you have something, Austin? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to make a comment more uh, relevant earlier when Jim was talking about, uh, you know, the citizens saying we don't want to pay for this. You know, there's peace, peace breaking out, and we've got enough ammo, and it just sits there and does nothing. Not because the, uh, the failure to realize that it's there to, as a deterrence. Uh, uh, deterrence factor, and you have to have a war breakout to 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 see why you know, why you had it. I recall, and I'm not going to take a shot at the names of these two places, but I know that between after about 1995, and it ends at with with 9/11, at least two major arsenals, just uh, uh, areas where we were storing ammunition for uh, during a Cold War, or that were under a lot of pressure to be uh, uh, closed down. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, the, we don't have uh, quote-unquote environmental issues, even though it's uh, the minor compared to what you would uh, encounter in, in, in other areas because you have to, you have to keep the bunkers, weapon, the shell bunkers so far apart, and then you've got to be able to have uh, the... The, the temperature controlled and and, and, uh, and the like, and, uh, and I know one of them got shut down. Now here it's been getting on almost thirty uh, thirty years later, but it's a, that's a, another example of what Jim uh, talking about saying. Oh, well, we aren't going to need these. You know, there's it's peace, and oh, we're moving to quote unquote more modern systems, and, and you find out that. Uh, with some of the advances in uh, artillery shells, as well, also with the artillery uh, fire direction systems and target acquisition systems, then uh, these are absolutely primo weapons for uh, the uh, 21st century. Uh, and then, I guess, what the last comment I was going to make is, is that you've also got to think now about uh, missiles, because missile expenditure rate. Uh, can be very, very high, and they are hard to replace and, and ever to, to resupply, uh, in, especially in ships at sea. Uh, that is a problem to, to provide ships at sea with uh, with uh, new guided munitions, but I guess that's a subject for another guest. All right, we'll wrap it up there, and we will talk to you gentlemen next time. Okay. See you then, man. Bye, guys.